You're listening to the Super Talk podcast, produced by the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, shaping profit to member super. Hello and welcome to Super Talk. This episode is the audio recording of a panel discussion webinar AIST hosted on the 29th of March 2021 on concerns about measures contained in the proposed Your Future of Your Super legislation. The webinar was hosted by Eva Schilling, the CEO of AIST. This bill, this legislation, uh, if it passes the parliament, will deliver the most wide-ranging and significant changes to superannuation since our system started. Uh, Today's panel uh, represents a small snapshot of the many um, organisations and individuals who submitted to the first exposure draft and now the tabled Your Future, Your Super legislation. Uh, We rarely see such a large number of diverse submitters on superannuation legislation. Uh, In fact, it has received more submissions than any other superannuation bill in the last four years, including the Protecting Your Super um, package. Today's panel, like most of us, are generally supportive of the intent of this package, but have raised substantial concerns about its implementation in a number of key aspects that are likely to pose a risk for member outcomes. So with us this morning, we have Peter Byrne, who is the Chief Policy Advisor at AI Group. Welcome, Peter. Uh, Anna Angwerda-Smith, who is the Director of Policy and Research at IFM Investors. Welcome, Anna and Dr. Pamela Hanrahan, who is Professor of Commercial Law and Regulation at UNSW Business School. Good morning to you, Pamela. All right. So let me just move on through these slides here quickly. Oops. Um, Just wanted to point out to you um, that we have our big event, our big conference, the Conference of Major Super Funds, um, just just under a month, under two months away now, the Wednesday the 18th to, sorry, Tuesday the 18th to Wednesday the 19th of May at the Adelaide Convention Centre. And uh, despite the snap lockdown that was called in Brisbane this morning, we do, we are keeping our fingers crossed that we will be able to have a face-to-face event um, for this, um, you know, gathering of the superannuation industry. Um, just let you know when the next dates are for our trustee director course. Um, and there's a slide there with some of the upcoming professional development that AIST has scheduled. And I direct you, of course, to our website in the event that you are interested in finding out any more. Okay. All right. So thank you. Um, we'll... I want to just quickly run over uh, a bit of an overview of the legislation as it currently stands. So initially released in exposure draft as three bills, the legislation was introduced as a single bill to the House of Representatives in mid-February with little substantial change from the drafts to the tabled legislation. It was then referred to a Senate committee that will report on the 22nd of April. Um, submissions for that just went in uh, just over a week ago. Um, Though it was listed for debate in the House last week, the timetable was pretty packed and they didn't get to it. So it is yet to pass through the House of Representatives. Considering the Senate reporting date, uh, there is little time for the government to meet its 1st of July start date for this legislation, assuming, of course, that the bill does pass through the Parliament. 
The legislation leaves significant matters to regulations, which are expected to be released soon. The absence of these regulations have made it very difficult for stakeholders and members of the parliament to understand the full ramifications of the proposed changes. As you would know, the bill is made up of three schedules, um, one in relation to a single default account, which we referred to as stapling, uh, a second on underperformance in superannuation and the third on the best financial interest duty. We will be discussing all three of these today, so we have a lot of ground to cover. So we might just uh, start by getting the view of the panel on the genesis of the package, which was put forward by the government as a response to the Productivity Commission and some parts of the Royal Commission recommendations as well. So uh, those sub submitters have pointed out it departs from um, both of these reports. Peter, we might start with you. Um, AI Group have some substantial views on the use of the Productivity Commission report in lieu of a regulatory impact statement. Perhaps, so perhaps you could get us started. Sure. Thanks, Isra, and good morning, everyone. There is no regulatory impact statement associated with this bill. Um, instead, uh, they refer to the Productivity Commission report, which came down late in 2018, on the efficiency of the superannuation system. But the difficulties are that the bill departs significantly from the Productivity Commission recommendations. So uh, the content of the bill hasn't been subject to a regulatory impact statement. And of course, as Eva just mentioned, we haven't seen the regulations yet. So very hard to get a picture of the, the impact or, or any a thorough methodology around it. But there are things that are in this bill that weren't recommended by the Productivity Commission, the best financial interest test, for example. The intent of that recommendation that um, they cite in relation to that um, part of the bill is not achieved. They're, they do things, uh, they may make recommendations that um, in the Productivity Commission had complementary regula regulations, but they are not preceded within the bill. So, for example, with stapling, they pick up on the stapling recommendation, but not on the recommendations related to weeding out underperforming funds. And that's a dangerous combination. And then finally, in the performance measure, uh, performance measurement thing, the, rec the Productivity Commission um, recommendation embraced all products and all costs. But the bill doesn't touch on all products and doesn't touch on all costs. So the purpose of the regulatory impact statement is to push the regulatory agency towards best regulatory practice. That's an explicit um, purpose. And the other one, uh, cr a critical purpose, is that it is seen to be critical to transparency. So neither of these have been achieved. There is no RIS and no, nothing comparable to a regulatory impact statement. Mm. So that makes it interesting, I guess, that the Senate committee is, is looking at um, submissions in relation to this legislation now without also having seen the regulations and then therefore doesn't have a full view. Um, Pamela, you provided specialist advice to the Royal Commission on superannuation matters. How do you see this legislation in light of um, Haynes' recommendations? Well, Eva, it's well known that the Commissioner specifically looked at the best interest test. Uh, he was asked by government to consider whether the existing law 
was adequate and he made an explicit recommendation that the standard not be fiddled with. So um, there's no uh, reference in the explanatory memoranda to that specific recommendation by the Royal Commissioner, who of course is a very eminent jurist, a former High Court judge and an expert in what the law requires. Um, instead, there's an argument that the substituting the best interest duty with a obligation to act in the best financial interests of the members, um, there's an argument that that was recommended by the Productivity Commission, but as Peter's pointed out, that's in fact not correct. Uh, the Productivity Commission heard a lot of evidence from people uh, who we might say cynically thought it was in their interests to argue that the existing legal standard was unclear, uh, particularly facing the prospect of having their behaviour challenged against that standard. And the Productivity Commission said maybe APRA and others need to think about whether we need to have more supporting material to clarify, give examples of the sorts of conduct that might contravene that provision. Uh, they certainly didn't recommend the change that's proposed in Schedule 3. So um, I think the genesis of the legislation in answer to your question, uh, if it's come out of the Productivity Commission and the Hayne Royal Commission, then, as Peter says, it doesn't really capture the uh, spirit or the letter of the findings of those inquiries. Okay. Thank you, Pamela. Anna, in IFM's submission, the focus was really on performance outcomes. Do you think that the bill delivers on what the Productivity Commission um, was looking for in that area? Thanks, Eva, and good morning, everyone. Uh, the bill certainly bears a resemblance to the Productivity Commission's recommendations in relation to performance, but it misses some important elements. So it does seek to address the Commission's finding that most Australians are in superannuation products that are performing well, uh, but that performance varies widely across funds and products. And we do have some members stuck in high fee, uh, low performance products that are facing lower retirement balances as a result. So we really need to address the issue of underperforming funds and make sure we're not leaving members behind. The bill would establish an annual performance test, uh, which resembles uh, what the commission called a right to remain test. Uh, which compares funds' performance to a benchmark portfolio tailored to their asset allocation and calls out underperformers. It also responds to the Commission's call for better and clearer information for members to understand how their funds are performing, um, although we're still yet to see um, the details of what that online consumer-facing comparison tool will look like. There are a few areas where the government differs from the Productivity Commission's approach. Um, for example, the coverage of the test won't necessarily include segments of the market that the Commission identified as, uh, as underperforming or including underperformers. Um, and uh, as was mentioned, the test won't take administration fees into account alongside investment costs. We really think it's important that it does that if this bill is about informing and protecting members, then it makes no sense to ignore administration fees, which could significantly erode members' retirement savings over time. Thanks, Hannah. Yeah, so, the, you know, they're just making a reference to the productivity. And there we go. I was on mute. Uh, sorry about that. Um, I think I rested on my space bar. Um, 
the Productivity Commission and the Royal Commission uh, reports were, you know, were pretty in depth and and subject to, you know, a lot a lot of information. So it's a it's a shame, I, I guess, that the the power of the information and the evidence in both of those reports isn't necessarily informing this legislation. Um, one of the other elements uh, of the legislation that I know that, that um, lots of submitters are very concerned about is this power to ban. Um, it's perhaps the most unexpected measure um, in the bill and it, it gives an extraordinary power in the legislation to any government to make regulations at any time to ban any super fund uh, from certain expenditure or certain investments, regardless of whether that's in members' best interests. Pamela, you've noted that the power to ban is likely to increase partisan political meddling in the super system by the government of the day. Can you explain your concerns? Well, Eva, it may have been that I was writing the submission the day before Christmas Eve. <laughs> it was a little bit grumpy. Um, the regulation-making power, I know we'll come back to that later in terms of legislative design, but um, if you go back to the uh, reason why superannuation was included in the terms of reference of the Hain Royal Commission, um, I think the general consensus is that at least on the government side, there was a perception that um, particularly profit for member funds were uh, spending their resources advancing their own agenda rather than what the government saw as uh, the financial interests of the members. So it's it's a political concern and certainly the examples that were brought before the Royal Commission around various advertising campaigns and so on seem to be directed to that end. So um, if the government, you know, decides that spending money to own a bank or a political lobby group or to advertise uh, for particular reasons is against the financial interests of the members of the particular fund, then this will give it a direct power to control that decision-making. Mm. Well, you mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned sort of the, the power of uh, regulations. Um, here, you know, that regulation power would, would be available to a government at any time and wouldn't need to go through a full parliamentary process. So can you explain how that works and, and I guess what, what funds should be aware of in terms of their, their planning for investment portfolios, for example? Yeah, it's interesting. So subordinate legislation, whether it's um, in the form of regulations, which are made by the executive government, or in the form of, um, for example, instruments that are made by ASIC, which is also a form of subordinate legislation. I think for non-lawyers, there's often a mistaken belief that that means that it's uh, about the detail or uh, it's just filling in the colour that's provided in the principal statute. And Perhaps in a perfect world in terms of legislative design, uh, we would have something like that. So uh, this, is, funnily enough, is one of the issues that the Australian Law Reform Commission is looking at at the moment in the context of corporations law and in particular Chapter 7, the financial services law, which affects um, superannuation trustees, of course. So uh, do we have overly complex legislation? Do we have legislation that delegates legislative power in a way that's not effectively supervised. Uh, people who worked on the financial advice best interest uh, legislation a long time ago, back in 2014, will remember that the government made substantive changes to the best interest duty for financial advisors 
by way of regulation, and then that was disallowed uh, through the parliamentary process. And so we had many months of uncertainty where the government had purported to exercise this power and then it was uh, challenged and, in fact, that legislation ended up being disallowed. So um, it's not a process that allows the government to act completely without scrutiny, but it does encourage perhaps less rigorous approach to law reform than we would see if if these important and substantive rules, so not just rules about detail, but uh, substantive rules were made by, under a full parliamentary process. Mm. So it creates quite a lot of uncertainty then, I guess, as well for, for funds in their planning uh, in terms of what might come down the line in, in the future and whether or not, for example, they might be stranded um, with assets that they cannot sell. That's correct. And of course, managing a superannuation fund is a very, very long-term gain. So any kind of uncertainty about the sorts of um, issues or considerations that people ought to be able to take into account in planning their investments, uh, we really do need a stable environment to encourage the kind of long-term approach to investing that everybody agrees is in the interests of members. Yeah. Thanks, Pamela. Anna, you would have thought about this a lot <laughs> at, at IFM, this particular um, power, and your submission specifically calls out the, you know, the political risks in relation to commercial investment decision-making uh, in this power. Can you step us through, I guess, what you mean by, by this, uh, particularly for member returns and, and how IFM is thinking through it? So as you mentioned, this power extends not only to expenditures or payments by funds, but investments made by funds, including investments made by third parties such as IFM or other members on super funds' behalf. So we wholeheartedly agree that trustees need to be held accountable for the decisions that they make and that they need to act at all time in the best interests of members. But the government hasn't explained why it needs this extraordinary power of intervention it wasn't a recommendation of the Hain Royal Commission or the Productivity Commission. Uh, the government hasn't set out any criteria or process by which it will determine that an investment in a particular project or sector is quote-unquote unsuitable. Um, and as um, Pamela mentioned, because it's proposing to do this via regulation, that won't be subject to normal parliamentary scrutiny and debate. So, in effect, the government could make illegal investment in projects or sectors that it simply doesn't like. Um, we think this sets a really bad precedent for commercial decision making across the economy, particularly at a time when we need businesses to have confidence to invest to support the recovery. Um, and we don't want to see the Treasurer of Australia becoming the Chief Investment Officer of Australia. <laughs> so for, for us, this power would introduce additional political risk into the investment decision-making process because, as, as Pamela said, market participants can't know ahead of time how it might be used and what it might mean for assets that they already own and, and hope to hold for, for a long time as long-term investors. Um, it could also put managers serving superannuation funds at a disadvantage in relation to competitors who may not be subject to the same restrictions or uncertainties about um, their, their long-term investment environment. Thanks, Anna. Just by way of follow-up and a reminder to everybody, of course, that you can submit your questions in the Q&A bubble down the bottom of your screen. But Pamela, are you aware of uh, a power like this in any other country around pension fund investments or in any other financial sector in Australia? 
I think in terms of international comparisons, we have to remember that you can only compare Australia with other systems where the state does not administer the pension fund. So, of course, in many jurisdictions, uh, the pension fund is operated by the state and so it has direct control. But certainly a power to intervene and pick and choose amongst expenditure or investments is not carried across, for example, into the investment portfolios of managed investment schemes or insurance companies. Um, we do see uh, issues around risk management, particularly in prudential standards issued by APRA, having an impact on these decisions, but not a direct uh, power that I'm aware of, um, of the government minister to control that kind of decision making at this very granular level. Okay. May I also wanted to highlight AAST's recent survey of chief investment officers, which found that 90% of them thought that this power would impact on their investment decisions and two-thirds thought that it would impact negatively on member returns. Mm. Yeah, that was quite quite illuminating, um, getting that perspective from the CIOs of um, our 40-plus um, member funds. All right. Um, well, we might move on to uh, the single default account schedule of the bill. Um, and we might come back to the power to ban if we have time, because I'm sure that people will be thinking about their questions. Um, we've talked about the elephant in the room, so let's go through the other schedules in order. Uh, first up, we have single default account, as I said, which is um, proposed where it's proposed that new employees that don't choose a fund remain with their existing or their stapled fund and are only defaulted if there is no stapled fund. Um, AI Group has submitted on this, Peter. Um, you support reducing multiple accounts, but you've raised concerns that are echoed by a large number of submitters on this, um, and that is the extent to which stapling, the, the approach in the legislation, differs from the Productivity Commission recommendations. Why is this a problem? Well, we certainly um, support the idea of reducing, in fact, removing unintended multiple accounts. So this happens when people move from job to job. They don't nominate the super fund. They don't tell their, their new employer about the previous account, so they get defaulted into the, next, into the next fund. So that means that they end up paying a lot of fees. So it's not a, not a desirable outcome and needs to be fixed. There are a number of actions that are in process that, will have, that could address it in a number of ways that could be extended further. However, this one doesn't achieve its purpose or it uh, achieves part of the purpose, but at a very great cost. So what the Productivity Commission recommended was this stapling proposal. So you stay with the account that you first are defaulted into. And as you move from employer to employee, sorry, from employer to employer, you get, you stay, you take your fund with you. Even if you don't even know about it, you ask the tax office and they tell you what it is. So that's all sounds good. But what the Productivity Commission also recommended was very firm measures on weeding out underperforming default funds. And we don't have that in this bill. So what that means is that people will face a risk of being initially defaulted into an underperforming account and then staying with that throughout their working life. The Productivity Commission looked at the how default funds performed and found that 14% of them were underperforming. Now, the upside of that is that 86% were performing well. So the 14% means that 
you know, one in whatever that means, a little bit over eight, one in eight people get initially defaulted into an underperforming fund when they first enter the workforce. What happens now is that when they take their job, next job, these the people who don't exercise choice, they then get defaulted into another account and the next job, another account. What the, the effect of this process is that without weeding out the underperforming accounts, after your third job, you have less than half a percent chance under the present system of having all your money in a low-performing fund, 14% times three, or 14% um, raised to the power of three, actually. But the, the downside of the present proposal is that 14% of people remain in a low-performing fund. So 14% have all their money in a low-performing fund under the proposal in this bill. Less than half a percent of people have all their money in a low-performing fund under the present arrangements. So that doesn't, that's not a great outcome for those people. In fact, it's a terrible outcome. They end up with um, very performing uh, fund, low performance, low investment returns, constant, maybe high fees, for whatever reason the fund is low performing, they're stuck with that till retirement. Yeah, Peter, AIST similarly very concerned about that. Um, you know, we, we agree that um, unintended multiple accounts are, are not a great thing, but um, more importantly, though, we need to make sure that nobody can be stapled uh, to an underperforming uh, fund. So it's a, it's a sequencing uh, issue in terms of stapling. The other thing, of course, is that we still don't know what the definition of a stapled fund will be because it too will be in the regulations. There are, of course, other um, consequences of stapling. And one of those, I think, Peter, that um, your submission has also identified is in relation to group insurance, particularly for hazardous industries. Can you maybe talk, um, talk us through that? Yes. Yeah, so for some people, they, people they, I mean, they take on a new job in a hazardous area, say construction is often area isolated, and they join a fund or default fund is a fund which specialises in providing insurance that is appropriate to those occupations. If you started off in the hospitality industry as a, re, you know, working for Maccas or something like that, you're going, not going to be defaulted into the construction fund. So you won't get the advantage of the specialised insurance. So that's a major flaw in the design of this, that... Um, if you're stuck with your initial fund, you're stuck with the default insurance there, and that's not going to be appropriate for many people in hazardous occupations. You've also got concerns as an employer group uh, about the transition issues for employers with these stapling measures. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, so although we're all very engaged in this, most employers aren't. They don't know that it's going to hit them on, they're going to have a new set of obligations, new processes to comply with, new paperwork obligations as of 1 July under the present timetable. Um, so they're not ready. Um, the bill isn't passed. They don't know whether that's going to happen. Um, they're not switched. Typically, people aren't switched on to things that haven't yet been passed. Getting them switched on is very difficult, not worth the time, quite frankly, in our experience. But... Um, so there's that question about that. But the other question was, so what happens when there's this sort of messy transition? 
If they don't make payments into a superannuation fund on behalf of their employees, they are liable to big penalties. They can't make those payments into superannuation funds if they don't have news from the ATO about whether or not the, they, the person has a stapled fund, and if so, what it is. So there's, there, are, there are provisions that provide some degree of sort of flexibility around that in this um, bill, but we're not sure that they're going to work. Um, a lot of the, um, the cause of a delay will be at the ATO end and not at the employer end. So they're not ready. There's a risk they might be, face big fines and they don't know whether the legislation will be passed. So not a great mix. So at best, you'd want six months' notice on all of this stuff. Mm. All right. I knew we would get an audience question in relation to um, the power to ban. I might hand this one over to you, Pamela, if that's okay. Do you think the power to ban certain investments might create extreme political risk for the government in the future, any time that a particular investment goes bad, someone will ask why the government didn't ban it. That's always a concern, particularly for regulators. Um, the most difficult thing sometimes to do is not to act because um, you're quite right, there can be concerns that people will um, turn around later and, and, and challenge that decision. Now, a really good example of that at the moment might be transition risk around climate change because we do know that there are various uh, class actions that have been commenced against government decision makers about their failure to intervene, uh, to make sure that particular projects, for example, don't go ahead. Uh, and so you can certainly see that there would be a potential for litigation risk around that. Um, whether that kind of litigation would be successful, I think, you know, that's a long way down the track. But we have seen, um, you know, if the, if the government decided the government of the day decided that it wasn't going to intervene to control decision-making around assets that ended up being stranded later, um, they might well face the prospect of a challenge on that basis. That's not to say that that would be successful on the existing law, but certainly we are seeing courts entertain that type of litigation now. All right. Thank you, Pamela. Um, we might move on to the next schedule of the bill, uh, addressing underperformance in superannuation because all roads in uh, superannuation land lead to performance. Uh, it'd be hard to find anyone who disagrees that ensuring members are, you know, in well-performing funds uh, is an absolute must. AIST, along with many others, have been calling for a performance quality filter for years, and we saw this as an opportunity for that. Unfortunately, there are concerns, though, that the annual performance test proposed in this legislation may actually have adverse impacts on member returns. There is uncertainty due to the way the legislation is constructed, delegating substantive detail to the regulations, which are, as we've mentioned more than once, are yet to be released. So before we talk about the schedule itself, I wanted to touch on this approach to drafting, Pam. Um, uh, so much is left to the regulations. Uh, although, have we have maybe, is there anything else you wanted to add in, in relation to the regulation making power and, and the amount of information that is left to it? Because I know that in talking um, with crossbench bench members of the parliament in relation to this legislation, this is not the first time the government has uh, in, recent, in recent times um, 
produced hollow legislation, I guess, for the parliament to consider, uh, leaving so much of the actual substance of the of the new law to to regulations. Yeah, look, I think it's a really important consideration for parliamentarians. How satisfied are they that there's enough uh, substance in the legislation for them to be able to make an informed assessment about its likely impact? Uh, Peter talked at the beginning about the absence of a RIS, a regulatory impact statement for this legislation. Um, It's very difficult to see how you can balance the cost and benefit of the proposed intervention when you don't know what the legislation will require of people who are affected by it. So I think it's encouraging that the parliamentarians are recognising this as an issue um, and really challenging it. I mentioned um, in my preliminary comments that the Australian Law Reform Commission is looking at the structure of all of our financial services and corporate regulation to see whether this is an issue that needs to be addressed. Um, I think there's a view out there that the perfect model would be that the principles are enshrined in the statute and that they're left alone from year to year and that the detail maybe would be included in subordinate legislation, but that's not the structure that we have at the moment. So it's within the power of the executive to make regulations, for example, that create criminal offences that don't otherwise exist. And that's a big shock to people when they realise that. So um, the increased reliance of government on this kind of hollow legislation fleshed out by regulations creates a timing problem, but I agree that it creates an accountability problem as well. Mm. Anna, I'd like to bring you in on this, particularly in relation to the performance test. Could you outline maybe the major concerns that you have about the possible adverse impacts of that test from an investment point of view in terms of what we know so far? Yeah, so look, obviously performance is absolutely fundamental to a strong super system and in this industry we all understand that we're accountable for investment performance. Where the proposed test misses the mark is that it really only assesses how effectively funds are implementing their asset allocation strategy rather than whether it was the right strategy in the first place. And even though we know that choices about asset allocation are a key driver of returns, we also need to be careful that the benchmarking methodology is appropriate. Um, I saw a question pop up in the chat box about um, benchmarks. Um, we're particularly concerned about the impact of the benchmarks the government's initially proposed for unlisted assets, such as infrastructure, agriculture and agricultural supply chains, property, private equity, uh, which play a really important role in portfolios by providing diversification and relative earning stability. So, for example, in, in infrastructure, which is obviously a, a big a focus for IFM, Um, the government's proposing to use a listed benchmark that bears little resemblance to the typical um, investment of Australian super funds in infrastructure. Um, The proposed benchmark is about 70% North American assets, uh, less than 3% Australian. Um, It's dominated by listed railroad and electricity companies. Um, Whereas um, in Australia, about three quarters of funds allocation to infrastructure here is, is unlisted. Uh, And it doesn't look like that in terms of geography and and sector. So they're really quite different. Um, It's quite a different yardstick. Um, We think obviously no manager will want to risk failing the performance test. So we're concerned that they'll look to build listed portfolios that track the index rather than portfolios which might offer better long-term risk-adjusted returns but also come with a risk 
of materially underperforming the benchmark once in a while because of that volatility and because of the way that unlisted assets have different characteristics to the listed to the listed assets in the benchmarks. So uh, this would be a really poor outcome for members um, who are interested after all in long-term investment outcomes. And we think it would be a poor outcome for the country potentially will push investment offshore um, because many of those listed indexes are indices are dominated by foreign assets uh, and could leave important sectors of the Australian economy open to investors, often overseas owned, to not subject to the same rules. Mm. And also the intention is that this um, would apply um, the performance test for my super products, leaving non my super products at this stage to regulations. In your submission, you say that it should apply to all products. Do you want to take us through that, Anna? Yeah. So as you say, the performance test in the bill would cover my super products plus trustee directed products to be defined uh, in regulation, which will mean that thousands of choice and pension products representing millions of members won't be subject to the performance test. Uh, I think as, as Peter mentioned, the Productivity Commission was really clear on this point, a performance test needs to cover all our regulated products. Um, based on the sample data that they could obtain, the Commission found that there were a significant proportion of choice products were underperforming. So there's a risk here that uh, members are stapled to underperforming products if the coverage of the test isn't complete. Um, we'd like to see the government commit to that so that members can make a genuine comparison across funds and products. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. Um, Peter, AI Group has raised concerns that are echoed by many that all fees, including admin fees, uh, should be required to be included in the performance test. Could you explain why this is such a big issue? Sure. Well, the whole purpose of having um, a, a thorough performance test is to help people make informed choices. That's the reason. Now, not including some costs will mean that those measures aren't reflective of reality. So admin costs in the Productivity Commission um, study, they found that the difference between actual performance and benchmark performance, up to half of that was due to admin costs. So we're not going to include them. So that means there's a big risk that the performance measures will misrepresent performance. It means people will make poor choices. And then the other risk is that in creating a class of expenditure which isn't included in the test, you create an incentive for people to reclassify costs as admin costs so that their performance improves. Now, it's not going to actually improve performance. What it does, it increases the risk of misrepresenting performance. So I think they've got it fundamentally wrong. They're not including all costs. They're not including all products. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. I agree with you. Um, Anna, before we move on and just, you know, to touch on those regulations again, um, they're not out yet, but what would you like to see from a performance testing perspective in those regs? So, um, well, like everyone else, we're waiting for the devil in the detail in the regulations um, and hopefully we'll see them soon. And since the government's announcement at budget, it has received a lot of feedback from stakeholders about the performance test, about the, about the benchmarking methodology. 
Um, and I'm really hopeful that the regulations will reflect that feedback and reflect um, the, big, the big differences across and within asset classes. So in relation to unlisted infrastructure, we're asking the government to consider a CPI plus benchmark in line with practice from major Australia, Australian and global funds um, to reflect the fact that in infrastructure, we're often looking for inflation linked returns and it's an asset class in which unfortunately we, we don't have robust and universally accepted unlisted benchmarks. So um, that's infrastructure, but others have obviously come forward with multiple suggestions for that in asset class and for other asset classes. Um, so we, we need to see the regs and we need to work with government to make sure that uh, what is implemented and what is chosen as the benchmarks is, is practical and it's um, fair and it's appropriate to the actual investments that Australian super funds are holding. Mm. Okay, now the last schedule of this legislation is the best financial interest duty. And we've already um, done a separate webinar in relation to best financial interest duty. So if you're particularly interested in this one, uh, you can uh, maybe go back and have a look at uh, that particular webinar. But we do want to cover it off um, again today um, with some different speakers. So Pamela, maybe starting with you, we've seen significant interest from the legal community in relation to this particular part of the bill. Uh, there are a number of components in the schedule, the reversal of the burden of proof, which is, you know, very controversial, new record keeping requirements um, and in incredibly strict penalties in relation to that and the power to ban that we have already discussed. So could you outline maybe the key concerns from a legal perspective um, with the changes to the best financial interest duty? Yes, yeah, certainly. So as we mentioned before, when Commissioner Ken Hain looked at the existing best interest duty, he was satisfied that it was the appropriate test to protect the interests of members and that it didn't require the kind of refinement or um, uh, additions to it uh, that are proposed in the current legislation. Uh, so why did he say that? I think... Um, for trustees, they'll be acutely aware that the best interest duty is not about achieving the best outcome for members. It's not an outcomes test. Rather, it says to a trustee, and indeed the mirroring obligation says to the members of the trustee board, when you're making a decision to um, do or not do something, spend some money, make an investment or divest yourself of an investment, then you need to make that decision having regard to what is in the best interests of the members and not to some other um, connected or some private enthusiasm or some other consideration or some commercial or personal interest. So it's about what directs the decision-making by the trustee and its directors. The view that lawyers have is that we've landed on the trust as the preferred structure for these um, uh, products and that there's an existing body of trust law around the obligation of trustees to act in the best interest of their beneficiaries that gives some degree of certainty and stability to that requirement. So um, the legislation wants to have it a bit both ways. It says, oh, well, we're going to change the existing uh, test, which has a long history, but we're not going to exclude the general law test. And then we're going to say, well, we're not really changing the substance of the law because good trustees should have been thinking about the best financial interests of their members anyway. Um, 
So if they're not really changing the substance of the law, then it seems to me all they're doing is adding uncertainty to the relationship between the obligations that the trustee has under the statute and the obligations that it has under the general law. So you're obfuscating the general law duty, which will only contribute to further uncertainty. And I think it's fair to say more process-driven and more defensive decision-making by trustees. So um, lawyers have been pretty universal on saying uh, don't meddle with the existing test, which our um, esteemed colleague has said is appropriate because all you'll do is add to uncertainty and therefore cost without achieving the outcome that you seem to want, which is to improve the position of members. Because um, if it's in the member's best interest for the trustee to make a particular decision, which may or may not have financial implications uh, for the members, then it ought to be free to do so and not be trying to second guess itself about whether there are short or long-term financial implications of that decision. Mm. You reminded us sort of at the start of this webinar uh, about uh, writing the submission uh, to the exposure draft on, on Christmas Eve, as we all were, and I have this picture in my mind of, you know, people in, in Parliament House and in Treasury sitting there on Christmas Day waiting to read all of our submissions. Um, but I think one of the surprising things out of that process, there were so many people who did make uh, a submission. And then when the bill was finally tabled in the Parliament, there wasn't a great deal of difference uh, between the exposure draft and what was tabled, despite the fact um, you know, that this legislation has very few friends. Um, but in this particular schedule, there are a couple of changes. Pamela, could you maybe highlight for us where, where, um, where those changes are and have they improved the bill or not, in your view? I think the most significant stepping back, and it's not mentioned anywhere explicitly by government, but they started with a proposal to impose the best financial interest duty on individual trustee directors and then to reverse the burden of proof uh, in, uh, for those people who are subject to an allegation that they've failed to exercise their decision-making powers in the best financial interests of the members. So um, that was probably the most significant prompt for me to um, write a testy letter to Treasury on Christmas Eve. Uh, this proposal to reverse the burden of proof against particularly individuals but corporations as well when very significant civil penalties hang off the back of these as well as potential civil liability because that's not clear under the legislation. I think that attracted a lot of concern from members because there are all sorts of issues about the rights that people have uh, to protect themselves from the imposition of a penalty by a state which are really interfered with by that legislation. So um, that's the most significant change. But you're right, most of the, um, certainly the lawyers were, you know, pretty unanimous in rejecting the best financial interest test and yet that seems not to have been taken into account when the legislation was finalised and, and introduced into the parliament. Mm. Peter, AI Group has long been involved uh, in governance in superannuation um, funds and you've raised that the combination of the reversal of the burden of proof, the lack of a materiality threshold and the record-keeping requirements could actually divert attention away from members' best interest. Do you think the changes um, that we've just been talking about to this schedule have improved the legislation enough? 
You're on mute, Peter. Still on mute. How's that? Great. Great. Okay. Um, I don't think they've improved it enough at all. And I think the panel has covered that area pretty thoroughly there. Um, there's going to be such a compliance burden and such a diversion of effort into avoiding getting yourself into trouble that people won't be concentrating on what they should be concentrating on when they're governing super funds, managing super funds. They'll be worried about having in their back pocket enough evidence to show that a decision they took or a decision they didn't take is in the best interest of members. And that's a nightmare. And they can't be both looking at all that regulatory compliance and diverting appropriate effort into looking after their members at the same time. Mm. Yes, we all have perfect vision with 2020 hindsight as well. So when a regulator comes in after the event to, to scrutinise a decision, um, things look different than what they do in the moment. Um, I guess I wanted to give you all an opportunity to, um, you know, give some, some closing thoughts in relation to this legislation. Um, I guess maybe even if you, if you wish the parliamentary process um, you know, how this, you know, these significant changes to a, you know, a very strong uh, superannuation system uh, are being considered by the parliament. Um, and the fact that we don't have the regulations, the fact that we have all just made new submissions to a parliamentary inquiry in relation to it without, um, you know, knowing what is the, the detail in the regulations. Maybe I'll start with you, Anna. Yeah, thanks, Eva. Look, it is uh, it is frustrating that we don't have the regulations yet. Um, um, that's what we're working with for the time being, and hopefully we'll see them soon. Uh, I mean, notwithstanding the, the title of this webinar, The Legislation with No Friends, there is, as you know, clearly a huge community, um, both across and outside of the superannuation industry, who are really engaged with this bill and really determine that it works for rather than against the interest of, of members. So I'm encouraged by that. I think we have a few interesting uh, weeks and months ahead of us, um, but I, I think there's a good level of consensus and interest um, uh, in engaging uh, with government and the parliament more broadly. I'll just reiterate a, a comment that um, uh, Peter raised in relation to uh, the compliance burden, a number of submissions to the Senate did raise the issue of timing and the effective date of the legislation. As you say, these are really significant changes, um, potentially hugely complex and resource intensive for fund administrators, for trustees, for employers to implement. So I am concerned about that and I do hope that's something that as the government steers this legislation through the parliament that they really think about whether that effective date is feasible and practical. Thanks, Anna. Pamela? There we go. Sorry, I was just turning my mute off, Eva. Um, look, it's no surprise to anyone on this call that this is a highly politicised area. Um, and I think we're seeing the result that the superannuation sector is not... Um, well regarded by parts of the um, coalition at the moment. There is a bit of a view that um, 
there's a lot of self-interest involved, that there's a lot of knee-jerk, don't change it, please continue to obscure or protect poor performance and so on. So I think um, the timing of this legislation and the real sledgehammer approach that's been adopted um, reflects some of that political difficulty. I think that the superannuation sector is is um, facing. We've seen it in different parts of financial services over a long time. And so, you know, it's kind of you have to work out how to cut your sales to fit your cloth a bit um, with this. Uh, I think um, you're quite right to call out this issue about how much of the detail is left to the regulations. That's a process issue. Um, I shouldn't keep going back to the Hayden Royal Commission, but we did spend quite a bit of time and money as a community really testing some of these things forensically to see whether there were real difficulties or not. And the last set of recommendations made by Commissioner Hayne related to simplifying the regulatory structure and trying to get some um, certainty around regulatory arrangements so that people can plan for the longer term. And I think um, this type of highly granular legislation where um, government sees a, a point of sensitivity, particularly there, there are a number of backbenchers, I think, that are agitating around some of these issues. And so they get out a great big legislative sledgehammer and try and bang it on the head um, is is only going to continue to contribute to the poor quality of the regulatory stock that we've got in this in this space and I often talk about regulation it's kind of infrastructure for the economy and it needs to be carefully tended and looked after and treated with respect because if it does fall victim to kind of political positioning, then this can have really long-term implications for members and we need to stay focused on that I think. Yeah, did you, just by way of follow-up um, with your experience on the on the Hain Royal Commission, do you have any comments in relation to, and it's not in relation to the, to the Your Future, Your Super legislation, but about the changes that have been made to the regulatory structure by making ASIC the conduct regulator, for example? I um, had a couple of matters that were ventilated at the Royal Commission where perhaps I came to a different view from the Commissioner. Um, I think increasing the regulatory overlap between ASIC and APRA is uh, not a good idea. I don't think they manage that interface particularly well. Um, I've been an advocate in the past of a specialist regulator for the consumer, um, financial consumers. I think um, whether that's a separate division of ASIC or a separate regulator, um, I just feel 23 years on from when the original Tim, Twin Peaks arrangements were put in place that uh, the regulatory environment's a bit different now. So um, I'm not convinced that we are yet at a position where that interface between ASIC and APRA is ideal. I know that APRA now has a new member who's going to be responsible for superannuation as of last week or the week before, um, and ASIC will have a new chairman. I think that announcement is imminent, so we'll, we'll be watching that with interest. But hopefully we will see some really dedicated work done by those two agencies to make sure that that area of overlap is, is managed appropriately because I think there have been difficulties with that in the past. I'm personally not convinced that Twin Peaks remains the right model in the current settings, but I think it can be made to work with goodwill and those two people will be really important in making sure that we can achieve that. Yeah, thank you, Pamela. Sounds like a great topic for another future webinar. Um, Peter, some reflections from you? So I think that um, 
I think everyone on this call, and I dare say everyone who's watching, is totally in line with the overall objectives of this, of improving member outcomes, of improving the choices or making more informed the choices that people make when they choose a fund and fixing the default system so that when they don't make a choice, they're defaulted into a high-performing fund. I think everyone agrees with those objectives. I think there are very, very strong arguments to think that the legislature, this bill should not be passed in its present form because it won't meet those objectives. My final point is this, that I'm very wary about a process of bargaining and amendments that will go on with crossbenchers and come to a bit of this and a bit of that without full consideration, not that full consideration has been given so far. Without full consideration, people will be making decisions on the run about amendments. There is so much to avoid in what is the current bill that I think that's a, very, that's a nightmare. I think, sadly, this should be rejected and the government should be asked to start again. Couldn't have said that better myself, Peter. I think uh, when we saw the initially the... Um, you know, this legislation proposed as three separate bills. We thought that the best financial interest duty was something that needed to be rejected, but perhaps there was some way of working with the government in relation to the other two. Um, now that it's all been compiled into into one bill, I'm afraid we also share your concern, you know, your concerns there and think that the bill should be rejected and should go back to the drawing board. Um, anyway, that was a, you know, a whistle-stop tour of um, some pretty substantive proposed legislative change with the Your Future, Your Super uh, legislation. Um, so hopefully we have um, managed to cover most of the things that our audience would be interested today. I see that there is a couple of questions that we didn't get to. I'm sorry uh, about that. I'd like to thank all of our speakers, Pamela, Anna and Peter. Thank you so much for your contribution and, and preparing for today's discussion. Um, we will make a donation on your behalf uh, to the Literacy for Life Foundation, which is AIST's Indigenous uh, charity partner by way of thank you. Um, to help improve the experience for our audience, uh, we'd really like participants today uh, to complete a short survey um, after this event and a link will be sent to you um, at the conclusion of the webinar. For those of you that feel like tuning in again, the session recording will be available um, on the AIST member portal and as well as a, as a podcast. Um, it is a free webinar, so feel free to share it with any of your colleagues that you believe uh, would benefit from it. And if you're interested into going more into the best financial interest duty uh, schedule of the bill, um, there is an earlier webinar in relation to that that is available on the AIST website as well. I hope that you will join us again for another AIST event soon. Uh, I would certainly love to see you all face-to-face -face at CMSF. It has been such a long time since the industry has been able to gather um, and network and, and just reflect on what has been an incredible, incredibly difficult past 12 months. That's all for this episode of Supertalk. For more episodes and for information on the work of the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, visit our website at aist.asn.au. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.